So friends, what do Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Edison, Winston Churchill, and James Braddock all have in common? Now, the morbid among us are like, they're all dead. And that's true, but that's not really what I'm getting at. What all those men have in common is they're all comeback kings. So Abraham Lincoln ran for public office eight times and lost before eventually storming back to win the presidency and become one of our nation's most revered and greatest presidents. Thomas Edison was sent home by his elementary school teacher with this note, he is too stupid to learn anything. I think classrooms looked a little different maybe in his day, but at any rate, he would go on and he'd be fired from his first two jobs because he was, quote, unproductive. And yet, we know he would go on to what? Invent the light bulb and the phonograph and the motion picture camera and over a thousand patents to his name. At the age of 40, Winston Churchill cried, I am finished, after having led one of the most disastrous naval campaigns in British history. His own party deemed him a maniac. He was, quote, a public danger. His political future, Churchill's was, was over. And for 15 years it was, until 1939, with the German war machine mobilizing in Europe, Churchill rose from the ashes, he became Great Britain's Prime Minister, and he single-handedly willed Britain through the war and became one of her most revered leaders. James Braddock, that may be a name not all of you recognize, but he was a, an early professional boxer. He injured his hand and went on to lose a string of more than 20 fights. He had gone from the heights down to the depths. His fighting days were over. He became a longshoreman, and it was there working on the docks that his hand was strengthened. And years later, he reemerged into the ring. And in a massive upset, he defeated world champion Max Baer, a story that's been immortalized if you've seen the movie Cinderella Man. Okay, so... I say all that, right, because you hear some of those stories, and if you're like me, your spirits lift. We love comeback stories. And why is that? Well, perhaps it's because every one of us here knows what it means to fail in life, right? We aim the nose of our plane right up to the sky, up to the heavens. We shoot for the stars, only at some point to have that plane just come crashing down in flames, Maybe it's a career, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a battle with addiction, maybe it's rising insurmountable debts, or friends, maybe it's with God. Maybe we have made such a mess of things in our own lives that we assume there is no way that we can get out of this massive chasm we have created between ourselves and God, and we wonder, is there any possible way back? Can our own life become a kind of comeback story? Well, friends, that brings us this morning back to our study in the book of 2 Samuel. So I'd invite you to turn there. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 19 through 21, so three chapters, but 
Yes, this is actually the last of these messages that's over multiple chapters. Hopefully you've had a chance to read them this week. If not, we'll try to work our way carefully through, but you can find our passage beginning on page 270 if you want to use one of the red Bibles provided in the pews before you. And as you turn there, 2 Samuel, well, what have we seen? It, it recounts the rise, then the fall, and this morning the return of Israel's great King David. Now last week, David's own life, we saw it went down in flames. His son Absalom initiated a coup, forcing him to flee. David loses, he loses throne, he loses his palace, he loses his city, he loses many of his friendships, he loses wives even, and he's forced into exile. And there's a decisive battle between David's armies and Absalom's armies, and it ends with Absalom under a pile of rubble and David weeping for his lost son. Now this morning we're going to read of David's return to the throne, and he is a kind of comeback king. He's restored from exile. He resumes his reign in Jerusalem. And yet the return of David, well, that really just prefigures the return of another great king, another one of the Lord's own anointed, a great king who returned from the exile of the grave and then ascended up to the very throne of God. So how will we respond to the return and reign of not just David, but the one to whom David points, the great King Jesus? Right? How will you respond to that return and reign? Well, there are three observations I want us to make. I'm just going to give you the points out front uh, from our passage. And three observations about the return of God's king. First, the king's return sparks division. The king's return sparks division, chapter 19. Second, the king's return provokes rebellion. The king's return provokes rebellion, that's chapter 20. And thirdly, the king's return requires satisfaction. The king's return requires satisfaction, chapter 21. And I was relieved when Jeremy was leading services and he mentioned the service. He basically, I don't even think he realized it, he quoted much of my outline right there because that's what the text is about, right? Okay, so first, the king's return sparks division. The king's return sparks division. So we pick up chapter 19, look down with me to verse 8, and just know if you're new to a Bible, chapter 19, those are the big bold numbers. Verse 8, those are the little superscript numbers. So 19, verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So let's, let's stop right there. The people of Israel now find themselves in a political pickle. Right? They joined the insurrection with Absalom, and they joined it against King David. But now Absalom is dead. Do they bring David back? Do they risk David's wrath? Now, it seems the northern tribes want to bring David back. They recognize, yeah, when it came to domestic policy, right, David, he had some defects. He had some problems. But hey, no one could argue with his foreign policy, right? The guy had wins everywhere. But the southern tribe of Judah, David's own tribe, is less certain. 
most likely because so many of them were part of that insurrection. And so there's a rift that begins to form here between the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. And with that in mind, look with me to the end of chapter 19. Look with me to chapter 19, verse 41. Chapter 19, verse 41. So at this point, they've decided to welcome David back. But notice how another rift forms. We read, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? Remember, David was in exile, so he has to come back over the Jordan, back into the promised land. So why they've stolen you away, brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with them. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. All right, so notice how chapter 19 is bracketed by division. The return and reign of the king is causing division and causing dissension within Israel. And friend, is that not what we see also with the reign of King Jesus? Maybe you know Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In Luke, it refers to the word division. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now those verses can surprise us because we sometimes think of Jesus as a, a kind of Mr. Rogers, right? A very soft and gentle man. He probably wears a cardigan, like drives an old Volvo or something. Those are some of our notions about Jesus. And yet, we find that Jesus was not always a uniter. Jesus often was a divider. Because King Jesus' claims were all-encompassing. We just read that in Matthew 10, and they were absolute. They're offensive to many, which was why people either loved Jesus or they loathed him. But there was no real middle ground. It was just one or the other. And so the reign of King Jesus also sparked what? It sparked division. Division in families, division in communities, even division in churches. So the Christians in the room, I wonder, have you personally witnessed how Jesus divides? Have you witnessed how Jesus divides in your own life? Have you witnessed maybe friends walk away from you because of Jesus? Or maybe family turn against you? Or maybe teammates begin to revile and mock you? Or maybe bosses who become prejudicial toward you? Or maybe even other so-called Christians who scoff because you are choosing to bear your cross and follow Jesus. And if the answer to those questions is largely no, maybe ask yourself, why do you think that is? Could it possibly be that you're in fact not following the Jesus of the Bible? 
Because the reign of God's king naturally divides. And it divides people, and it divides them in their various responses to him. So in chapter 19, we're reintroduced to a lot of the characters we saw back in chapters 15 through 18. Guys like Shammai and Mephibosheth and uh, Barzillai, all, all those characters. And let's, let's take Shammai, because he's going to come up first in chapter 19, verse 16. But notice this time, Shammai, that great trash talker that we saw last week, notice this time he's not talking any trash. So look, chapter 19, verse 16. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. All right, we'll stop there. Shammai knows his neck now is on the line. Notice the verbs, right? He hurried, he rushed, he fell down. Shammai admits he erred when he was trash-talking David, as we saw last week. Maybe, you know, maybe he recognizes here. Well, he does. He ran his mouth a bit too much, right? He got, he got carried away. But he's trying to say to David, look, David, that's all in the past, right? Let's bury the hatchet. Let's see if we can't move on. For he says, look, I'm here. And don't miss this, I'm, I'm the first in line to greet you, and notice who I bring, I'm bringing a thousand men with me, this awesome welcoming party for you, David. Now the fact that he's running with Ziba, I think is the narrator's way of, of really helping us see these two guys are just one and the same man. Down at their core they are. And we can get the sense that this carefully crafted speech of Shimei's is offered not so much out of genuine loyalty, but out of more a kind of political expediency. And if Shammai sounds familiar here, it's because you've probably bumped into this guy before. You've probably even bumped into this guy at church. Someone who aligns themselves with Christ, but does so more out of self-interest, does so more out of the advantages to be had. Maybe it's to mollify concerned parents, right? You're in, you're in college and your parents want you to be at church. And so, yeah, you go to church occasionally and you always make sure to text them afterward. Yeah, the sermon was great or too long or whatever. They just, you want them to know you were there. Right? If that's you, college students, just be honest with yourself. Are you here because of Jesus or are you here because you're just trying to keep your parents off your back? Or maybe it's to pacify a spouse, right? So you join that Bible study. And you perform your spiritual duty because you've come to the point where, you know, the fight isn't worth it at home. And so instead, you will go to that study, not for spiritual reasons, but really just for marital reasons, just to keep the peace. Or, you know, maybe you're here at church because you want to get a date, find a date. And you don't just come, right? You dive in, you go head first, you get involved, you offer to serve, right? You want to make a good impression, and in that sense, Jesus just becomes a means to 
to an end. I fear there are lots of Shammai's gathering around the church. And with a great smile and with religious lingo, they're quick to point out all that they've done for Christ. But it's nothing but token submission. It is not genuine affection. And it is not genuine contrition. And Abishai seems to get this, right? He says in verse 21, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Well, here we see a beautiful picture of how I think David's reign points us and prepares us as well for Christ's reign. For Abishai's right, Shammai should die for cursing and for rebelling against the king. We all should die. But we don't die, right? We are here now listening to God's word. David could have executed justice. David could have taken his vengeance on Shammai right here. But he says, not today. Judgment is delayed. For today, David is saying, is the day of repentance, not retribution. Today, David is saying, is the day of salvation. David is being patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And no sooner had Shammai finished his speech, what happens? Well, Mephibosheth rides up. And just pay careful attention to how Mephibosheth's response differs from Shammai's response. Look with me, verse 24, chapter 19. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, O oh, my lord, the king, my servant, and here he's referring to Ziba, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He, referring to Ziba, has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord, the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So now we see why Ziba was running with Shammai. Because the other side of the story, right, just came out here. And David hears it from Mephibosheth's own mouth. And looking at his appearance, you know, you would have to say the poor guy just let himself go, right? He's dirty, he's disheveled, he's got a scraggly beard, he's got the curling nasty toenails, all of that. A telltale sign that what he had aligned himself with David in his exile. And notice again how his response, I think, differs to Shemai's or from Shemai's. 
you know, he said, Shammai, yes, I've made a mistake, but David, look at all that I've done for you. Right? Don't take my life. No need to do that. The other says, actually, you deserve to take my life. My innocence counts as nothing. Do whatever seems good to you. That's what Mephibosheth says. One points to his righteous acts, whereas the other effectively says his righteous acts are like filthy rags. One is concerned with saving his own hide, while the other, obviously given his appearance, seems to care not a lick about his own hide. One is concerned with preserving his honor, the other is concerned only with the king's honor. Now David can't see into those men's hearts. And so what does he do? He divides the estate in two. It's a kind of parody of what's going to happen almost when Solomon comes, if you remember in 1 Kings 3, to divide the child with the sword of justice. David, in a kind of parody, does that here. But friends, Jesus can see right into our hearts. And he'll say in Matthew 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? A little, it sounds a little like Shammai. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? The return of the king divides such that one is revealed as concern, in, in his concern, we should say, one, Shammai is only self-interest, whereas the other one is concerned with the king's interest. Two different responses. Oh, friends, do not be like Shammai who has all of the right words and yet has no heart. Don't trust in the good things that you have done. Don't parade them before the Lord as if he is going to be impressed. No, but in humility like Mephibosheth, throw yourself onto Christ's mercy. But sadly, not all do that. And that brings us to our second observation. The king's return provokes rebellion. The king's return provokes rebellion. That's chapter 20. Look down with me, chapter 20, verse 1. We read, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, the Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And so all the men of Israel withdrew from David. And followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. All right, so right there, Sheba, he instigates a rebellion. And notice, what does he do? He splits Israel. So the men of Israel, verse 2 there, refers to the northern ten tribes. And those northern ten tribes there with Sheba. Whereas what the men of Judah, the southern tribe of David, they now stay with David. And the first thing we read about Sheba is that he's a worthless man. That expression, if you just sort of put it more woodenly, a son of Belial, as in a son of wickedness. There's the very same expression used of Eli's sons all the way back in 1 Samuel 2. And so in that, we're already told all we need to know about this guy. And, you know, we feel badly for David. At least I know I did reading through this. I felt badly for David. I mean, Poor David hasn't even made it back yet to Jerusalem. He hasn't even convened his first cabinet meeting. He hasn't even given his acceptance speech. He hasn't spent one night in his royal bed before another insurrection arises. 
It's wearisome. All the rebellion against the Lord's anointed. But friends, should we be surprised? Isn't that the way it is in the Christian life? Isn't it a a fitting picture of the kind of struggle that happens also in our own Christian lives where we are given no break and where it seems we come across one trial after another as David now is in his life? You know, you might be in one of those seasons where you feel like there's a never-ending set of waves and they are just pummeling you and you struggle to rise to the surface and you barely do and you catch your breath before just another wave of adversity comes and crashes upon you. David is going to have to learn a lesson here that we all have to learn in life. And that is that God gives grace sufficient for each day. He doesn't give us today the grace we need tomorrow. He doesn't give us today the grace we need for next week or next month or next year. Because if he were to do that, we would all rely upon ourselves. No, he gives what? He gives grace sufficient for each day. That's it. And in doing so, the Lord reminds us that we must depend upon him. Right? Like Israel in the wilderness, they were given what? They were given a day's portion of manna every day. And God's grace is just like that. It's like manna, enough for today. And he'll, su- he'll provide and supply tomorrow what we need for tomorrow. Now, if you like me and the squirrels are going crazy in your yard this time of year, and you see them, and what are they doing? They're anxiously scurrying about, and they're stuffing their cheeks full of nuts, fearful of whatever nasty cold spells about to come around the corner, if it ever gets cold this fall. Friends, we're often like those squirrels, aren't we? We're anxiously seeking to stuff our cheeks with tomorrow's manna. But God calls us to look to him, to depend upon him, to trust in him, and to pray to him, not for tomorrow's bread, but for today's daily bread. And friend, David is going to have to learn that same lesson. And in response to the uprising, what does he do? Well, David sends his new general, Amasa, he sends him to gather the troops. Only we read that Amasa delays at the beginning of chapter 20. Maybe he ran into some kind of resistance. Maybe he, I don't know, maybe he got a a flat tire, hit some bad weather. We're not sure. We just know he delays. And so David, fearful that he's going to lose his opportunity to squash this rebellion, he sends Abishai and all of his men, including Joab, to pursue Sheba. Look down with me to chapter 20, verse 8. And, then, and when they, referring to David's men, Abishai, Joab, and his men, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab sent to, said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Friends, this is Abner all over again, isn't it? Back, we saw in chapter 3 when when uh, Joab also kind of put his arm around him and gave them that 
unsuspecting strike to the stomach. It's the same thing happening again here. It's the same thing he did with Absalom. Now here with Amasa. I don't know what this is. He's got something against guys with names that start with the letter A. I don't know what it is. But his bloodlust knows no end. And notice that Amasa is betrayed by one who calls him what? My brother. And how is he betrayed? By a kiss. Just like Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It seemed Absalom wasn't the only Judas amongst David's own disciples. And now we're seeing there's really not just one rebellion in the kingdom. Now there's two rebellions. You've got the rebellion of Sheba, yes, but then you have here as well the ongoing rebellion of Joab. And you know, it's easy for us here to separate ourselves from Joab and and his dagger now dripping with blood. But friends, Joab was a loyal man. He never schemed to take the throne. He never instigated a full-fledged rebellion. He would always appear to serve David and only David. And yet while Joab was loyal to David, notice how Joab's ultimate loyalty was always to Joab. He was happy to serve the king insofar as it served him. And we're seeing just another Shammai here in chapter 20. And my Christian friend, might that possibly describe you? Ask yourself, when Christ's will crosses your own will, whose will wins? When your will and Christ's will come into conflict, whose will wins? Is it regularly your will or is it Christ's will? Again, to the students in the room, right? Maybe you're in high school or younger, maybe a little bit older. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and you know it's wrong. Or maybe there's something happening in college with your Greek life. Or maybe there's something related to friends at school who are pressuring you. In those moments, whose will wins out in your life? Is it Christ's will or is it your own will? Or maybe you feel like you're in a dead-end marriage this morning. Right? You're tired, you've tried everything, you just want out. Surely God wants me to be happy, right? I don't deserve this. And you ponder leaving. In those moments, whose will wins out? Is it your will or is it Christ's will? Now in such moments, what do we do? Well, we usually excuse our quote-unquote only occasional rebellion. And we write that off as an aberration and we move on. You know, we reason, you know, that's not how I normally behave, right? Jesus will understand. I'm not generally like that. But friends, recognize those moments are not, in fact, an aberration. Those moments are the occasion that exposes what is really happening inside your own heart. Your response in such moments reveals the identity of the true king you swear allegiance to. And in that, many of us actually look a whole lot more like Joab than we might like to think. Yes, we're religious, and yes, we don't engage in open rebellion, but in those moments where Christ's will crosses our wills, too often we go with ours. And we're not finally willing to bear his cross. Friends, could that be you? And if it is, again, what does that say about your relationship with Jesus? Are you sure you really have one? 
Now as we keep reading Joab and David's army, what do they, they do? They pursue Sheba to the city of Abel in verse 14, and they lay siege to the city, and the city begins to suffer, and it's then we learn that there's a wise woman in the city, and she demands an audience with Joab, right, besieging the city. And she says, why would you destroy the Lord's inheritance, right? The, the Lord's treasure, his heritage, his people. And so he offers her a proposition. Give up Sheba, just him alone, and we'll leave, all of you, to yourself. And so we read in chapter 20, verse 22, Then the women, woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. There it is, rebellion quashed. Sheba's, well, he's done with. But is the rebellion really over? I mean, is it over finally? Because the passage ends, and where is Joab? Joab, his rebellion hasn't been dealt with. He's there with the king in Jerusalem. What about Joab's rebellion? That's one of the questions we're left with as we finish chapter 20. Well, friends, justice may be delayed, but justice will never finally be denied. So in 1 Kings 2, we're going to read there in just a few chapters, if we were to keep going, that David's own son Solomon would one day bring Joab to justice for the blood he shed. Is that not even what we read about in chapter 19, when David's greater son, greater even than Solomon, will bring every proud rebel to an end. We're seeing that here pictured for us in Sheba. And on that day, when Christ comes, my friend, how will you fare before him? We can claim loyalty like Joab all we want, but if that loyalty isn't willing in everything to lay down our wills before his will, friends, recognize that's no true loyalty at all. Joab's not loyal to David. Joab is loyal to Joab and David insofar as it suits him. And this brings us to our third observation. The king's return, I want you to notice it requires satisfaction. The king's return requires satisfaction. Look down with me, chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and his house, neither is it for us to pay any man, rather to put any man to death in Israel. And he, referring to David, said, what do you say I shall do for you? Okay, so pause right here. Famines were often um, signs, particularly extended famines. They were signs of God's own displeasure. And David, recognizing that, goes to God 
And it's revealed to David that this is happening because Saul had previously violated Israel's covenant with the Gibeonites. Now, you could go back to Joshua 9. You could read about this when Israel entered into a covenant with them that they wouldn't destroy the Gibeonites insofar as the Gibeonites would serve them and be subject to them. Now, it was foolish of Israel back in Joshua 9. They never consulted the Lord. And very quickly, they regretted the decision that they had made. And yet God's people had sworn an oath, invoking his own name, that they would protect the Gibeonites. And they cut a covenant, that's the literal language, with the Gibeonites, where an animal will be cut in half. And each party would pass through the two pieces of the animal as a sign that if either one of the parties would break the covenant, so they too shall be cut down like the animal. That act of cutting a covenant, if you want to read about it, it's pictured in Genesis 15. Maybe look at it this afternoon. But we're seeing here Saul had violated that covenant. And that violation was no minor matter. This just wasn't an individual matter. This was a public national matter. And his violation declared to the world that Yahweh's word cannot be trusted. Saul had taken Yahweh's name in vain he had discredited him. He had drug his name through the mud. And friends, notice how did Saul get there to this point where he's done this horrible act? Well, notice he put petty nationalism ahead of his zeal for the Lord. Right? He put petty nationalism ahead of his zeal for the Lord. Right? That's what we read in verse 2. Saul's zeal for his own earthly citizenship the kingdom of Israel, that trumped his zeal for any spiritual citizenship in the kingdom of God. And friends, how many of us may be guilty of that same mistake? How often do I find myself reading about what's happening in our own country and whether or not it's what's being touted in our nation's most elite universities or what's happening in various government agencies and I get all exercised, right? The news does what it's supposed to do. It gets you all in a fury and an uproar and then you start talking about it and if you're not careful, you're starting posting about it and you're saying dumb things. Well, at any rate, I can lament so much and spend so much time about and caring about my earthly citizenship. And I'll sometimes spend a lot more time carrying and, and carrying and fretting and worrying about that than in glorying in and proclaiming my spiritual citizenship. Friend, what would your conversations with friends and coworkers and family, think about even the conversations you may have over Thanksgiving. What about your social media posts? Would they suggest you have more zeal for your country or for Christ? Right, heading into election season, that's a good thing to have in our minds. That's not to minimize the respect we ought to have for our country, but it is to say that it should never be unclear where our true loyalties lie. And notice for Saul's blood guilt against the, Gibe uh, blood guilt against the Gibeonites, what had to happen? Atonement, verse 3, had to be made. Atonement had to be made. This hasn't just created a political rift between Israel and the Gibeonites. It had created an even deeper rift between Israel and their God. And the Gibeonites knew that Saul had violated the covenant. And there was no financial settlement. There was no personal vendetta that was going to solve this problem. 
And so what do the Gibeonites do? They instead ask that the curses of the covenant be enforced. Look with me down to 21 verse 5. They, referring to the Gibeonites, said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, referring there to Saul, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adrael, the son of Barzillai, the Melathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them, referring to the corpses by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, and the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Friends, it's a brutal, bloody section. But don't miss, that's exactly what's required for divine satisfaction. It's exactly what's required for divine satisfaction. Because Saul was dead, representatives of Saul would need to take his place. Not thousands like Saul had likely slaughtered of the Gibeonites, but instead seven sons of his own line. That number seven likely signifying completion. This was a sufficient sacrifice. The ESV says they were hung. That verb can also mean they were impaled, as the CSB notes, as in impaled upon a tree. The curse of the covenant breaker would be born. God's wrath against sin would be satisfied. And we know from the passage that that sacrifice was accepted because what happens at the end? God responds with the plea for rain. And we recognize passages like this often great against our modern sensibilities of fairness and of justice. But it's here that we see, friends, we see the gospel in all of its beautiful glory. And we see it in all of its bloody gore. For the beautiful grace of the gospel is that a representative would come. And it wouldn't just be any representative. It would be the very son of the very true king. 
And he would offer, offer up his own life as a perfect sacrifice. A sinless one substituted for sinners like you and me. And there he would hang, Jesus would. And notice, also with a mother by his side. Watching his agony. Beholding it just like Rizpah. And there on the cross he would bear the curse for our sins. So that God's wrath would be satisfied. And the proof that God accepted that sacrifice a sacrifice that was not finally rain from the heavens. That's not the proof. It wasn't rain from the heavens. But what was the proof? It's that Christ would ascend himself to the heavens. He would take his place on the throne in his Father's glory. And now, what do we know? The guilty are pardoned and the sinner is set free. Friends, what grace we have in Christ. What mercy we have in Christ that he alone, the sinless one, would willingly bear our own sin and guilt and shame. That he would die for me. That he would die for you. Oh friend, I hope the, the glory of that and the wonder of that is never lost upon you. God is kind. And like Mephibosheth, we should know that we don't deserve his grace. But he delights to give it. Because that's the kind of king that he is, beautiful in his grace. And yet we can't miss the bloody gore of it all. Atonement is horrible. It's gory. And I hope you see atonement is not just a doctrine. It's not just a, a concept. It's not just some abstraction that we coldly analyze and we hold and observe at a distance. No, the gore and the ugliness of all of this, the horror and the shock and the trauma of it is meant to shock us. For the atonement which lies at the heart of our own salvation, what did it involve? It also involved the slow, bloody death of Jesus on that crude cross of wood. Nothing about it was clean. Nothing about it was sanitized. Atonement, it's not just some intellectual theory. It's not a clever piece of accounting on paper. It is bloody and brutal. It is violent and ugly. Why is atonement ugly? Friends, it's ugly because your sins are ugly. It's ugly because my sins are ugly. We have no idea how, how ugly they are until we come face to face with a text like this. And now we start to see ourselves for who we really are. Atonement is ugly because our sin is. Atonement culminates in death because our own sin culminates in death. Sin comes to us with smiles. It comes with sweet whispers. But behind that mask is a rotting corpse. The wages of sin is death. Someone always dies. And that's what's pictured for us in that final scene of chapter 21. No doubt with all the civil strife in Israel, right? David looks weakened, and so the Philistines, right? They smell blood in the water, and they strike. Giants like Goliath, again, rise up, and once again, they are taunting Israel. And we're brought all the way back to 1 Samuel 17, where that great first giant Goliath taunted Israel. And they rise up against David and his men, and yet like the original Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17, 
These giants, four of them we read of, are struck down and their mouths are silenced. Taken together, it's a picture of God's judgment against rebellious sinners. And that judgment will come notice, either in the final judgment of the sinner, pictured here with the Philistines, pictured back with Sheba, pictured back even before that with Absalom. His judgment will come either in the judgment of the sinner or his judgment will come in the judgment of God's substitute in the place of the sinner. Friends, which will it be for you? Will you bear the curse of your own sins or will someone bear them for you? Judgment may be delayed in this life, but it is again never finally denied. Friends, we all need a comeback, but I hope you're seeing the comeback we need. It's much bigger than anything we read of in the sports world or at work, even in our own marriages or personal relationships. We need a comeback. We need the kind of impossible come from behind victory in our own relationship with God. For like Joab, we just gravitate toward God out of self-interest. Like Shammai, it's just push comes to shove. It's our will that always wins. Or we live in outright rebellion like Sheba. We want no inheritance, no share, no part of God's kingdom. We make that clear. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. But notice the end for all of them, it is grisly. And yet our hope in restoring that relationship, when the king returns, that hope is not like Shammai. It's not parading before God all that we've done for him. It's also not digging deep and just willing our way back like Winston Churchill just about willed his way back to the spot of prime minister. We don't get back to God. This comeback isn't by working and succeeding like Edison did. It's not the labor of our hands with James Braddock. No, this comeback is only possible when we approach God with a kind of humble contrite heart of Mephibosheth we simply cling to the grace of our Redeemer trusting in him believing upon him repenting of sin resting in him and so my friend when the king returns Jesus Christ himself when he comes how will he find you how will he find you let's pray